Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Societies rise. And societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. Today's episode of the Wicked Library is presented by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new used and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA. Specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit and order from them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. The critically acclaimed author of Demons, Dolls, and Milkshakes returns with 15 tales of horror and suspense with everything here is a nightmare from zombies in the old west to a young boy tempted by the devil from vampires with romantic longing to an abandoned lighthouse haunted by vengeful spirit from a serial killer getting unholy justice to an haunted English race car Nelson W. Piles invites you to explore the landscape of fear Suspense and horror. Take his hand and hold on tight. Remember that whatever you find there, whatever you see, no matter what you might think it could be, know this. Everything here is a nightmare. By Nelson W. Piles. Available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon.com. By Burning Bowl Publishing. Hello, kiddies. On October 17th, 2015, the Wicked Library performed its fourth annual Halloween special in front of a live audience at Rickett and Beagle Books in Pittsburgh. The show's creator, Nelson Piles, returned the mic along with show host Daniel Foydick to hold a storytelling session with fans of the show. The following is what transpired. <laughs> Warning. The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist. 
so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> My name is Nelson Piles, and I am the host this evening for the very first Wicked Library live event. Give yourselves a very big round of applause. Thank you all very much for coming. Now, over here to my left is Dan Foydick. Uh, if you are a devotee of the show, you know Dan as the, the host of the Wicked Library. Uh, he began his tenure in, uh, right at the beginning of season six. He's done a kick-ass job Thus far, give Dan a big round of applause. Whether you know it or not, or whether you knew it at the time when you walked in here, we are recording this for the annual Halloween special. And there have been three Halloween specials since the beginning of the show. Um, when I Shanghai Dan into taking over the show, my one stipulation was that the Halloween shows are mine. I crawl out of my grave once a year, and I do this. And since this is the first live event, it makes it even that much cooler. There are seven spooky stories for you this evening, five of which have been written specifically for this performance. I thought it would be a real dick move if Dan was here and didn't give him something to read. And I had actually asked him a while ago to write a story for this episode, and he's going to do that as well. Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, few people will get this reference. It's like when Anthrax had Joey Belladonna and the other guy do like that great version of a uh, ball of confusion. Yeah. See, Dave got it. Dave from Kettle Whistle Radio. David. I have to take a moment and thank Chris Rickert, the owner of Rickert and Beagle Books. Last credit got to go to Dr. John Towers, who is the co-creator of the Wicked Library. Let's give John a... A generous round of applause. Yeah. 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 All right. So, are you guys ready? Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I'm your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welcome to the Wicked Library. And I haven't said this since April. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whatever time you're listening, this is the Wicked Library. Now, yeah. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. We are recording this live October 17th at the wonderful establishment of Rick and Beagle Books. I did not fall into a hole. That was just a little audio fun. So, you guys ready for some spooky? Yep. <laughs> little brief history of the show. Uh, my tenure on the show lasted five seasons, and for most of those seasons, 
The art director was an author, an artist named Maddie Von Stark. And Maddie heard of our little live endeavor, and she offered a very brief uh, missive. She has a book called The Widow's Game, which is very cool. You can find it on Amazon.com. And she sent this story about sewing, which is spelled Samhain. Most people incorrectly call it Samhain. It is actually pronounced sewing. So when uh, there's a trick and tr- trick and tr- uh, trick or treat movie, and the main character's name is Sam, should be so technically, but that's just you know personal gripings by me. So anyway, this is Sewing at the Von Starks. The jack o' lantern I carved to look like Woo stares back at me with kabuki eyes. I grin and blow out the match. The North Nora wind of October, laced with a grim mist, uncurls its fingers onto my widow's walk. I am happy. I pull my jewelry coat tighter around my neck and stare off into the distance. St. Jude's Catholic Church steeple pierces the pink rust clouds into the black veil of Halloween night. I imagine all the children of Marshfield, Wisconsin, scuttling down Old Fifth Street, trying to keep their costumes heavy with frosty laughter and candy. I sit down on my lawn chair and light another match on the bottom of my boot. The light flares and I bring the flame up to my cigar. I take a deep breath and blow out the violet smoke and flick it over the iron lattice. I sigh and shut my eyes. Dreaming of me, Miss Stock, I hear B say with a sneer and the whip of his long black wool coat. Don't you have better places to haunt on sewing? I reply, unwilling to open my eyes but inhaling again on my cigar. I'm not wasting another Cuban on this menace. Nice will-o'-the-wisp turnip, I hear him grumble and tap a long fingernail against the pumpkin's flesh. Please try not to dent my homage to Mr. Wu, I reply with a heavy sigh and open my eyes. B stands in front of me all long-legged and high-hatted. Homage to your dog, he repeats, and his sharp teeth grate together in irritation. Every artist needs a muse, I reply and wave my cigar in his direction. This is the true end of sewing as we know it, and he claps his hands together. This is the most damnable lantern in all of history. You're just pissed off that I didn't spend 5,000 hours carving a trillion shark teeth like yours. I stand up and flick my cigar off the roof. No, he says, leaning back against the iron. It's horrible. It doesn't look anything like woo. Yes, it does, I say, walking towards him. The eyes are totally squinty and uneven like woo's. Maybe you should not use the world's ugliest dog as an inspiration to create the most depraved and unorthodox jack-o'-lantern ever to be seen, he sputters. I stop. I shove my hands in my pockets. Take back what you said about Wu being the ugliest dog, I demand, staring directly into his sparkling black eyes. No, he says with a smile. Your dog is ugly. My dog is not ugly, I reply and take one step closer to him. I pull my hands from my pockets and place them on the lapels of my jacket. It's going to be go time, motherfucker. She is the ugliest dog on planet Earth, he says, jumping up on top of the iron lattice, just out of my reach. She's prettier than you, I scream down as he slides on his wingtip shoes to the eaves of the second floor roof. You love monsters. He says with a smile, showing every glint of the ivory row under his lips. I watch his face in a second that is as perfect as the pale side of the moon. The blood rushes in my ears, and the second grows too long. 
His eyes wait for a response. I breathe. To me, he just looks like my heart carved in gargoyle stone. How I wish just one of these years he would climb up my roof to kiss me. Next Halloween, I will carve you, I exclaim against the rain beginning to fall. I will add it to my ugly pumpkin collection. You mean the start of your great pumpkin tradition, he yells back up at me. We are both smiling. We are the demented version of Romeo and Juliet. I'm not Charlie fucking Brown, I say just in time for him to jump away from my roof into the dark. Click, click, click. I turn around and see Mr. Wu tapping her paws at the window of the door. Her big gremlin ears beg for me to come back inside. Ugly dog my ass, I say and turn back around for one more look at my glorious pumpkin in the night. Wu, do you like your jack-o'-lantern? I ask, turning back to her foggy face in the glass. Click, click, click. Go her paws. I will take that as a definite yes. I do love monsters. I am one of them. Happy Halloween from Maddie Von Stark. Thank you. Now, we are an international podcast, and this story, you don't have to pick those up, man. (laughs) I said, lick my boot. Okay. (laughs) Mike is still unaware that that's where the explosives are for the evening. Uh, Our next story comes from Quebec, Canada. Um, She is someone who is relatively new to the show. Uh, Her first story was this year. Her name is Caitlin Marceau. And I asked Caitlin if she would write a story for Halloween. And I could hear the squee from Canada. And she was very, very happy and excited to do it. And she sent this really great, brutal Halloween story. There's very little fluff in the story, and uh, hold on to your potatoes, Dr. Jones. We're going for a ride. This story is called Mr. Perfect. She walks to the counter by the window, her wool slippers creating a static charge on the carpet, and takes a mug out of the cupboard. She picks up the nearby sugar jar and measures out two even teaspoons into the cup. Miranda grabs the coffee pot from the machine, the glass scraping against the burner and the liquid sloshing inside, and pours it into the mug. She stirs it all together and takes a sip, the hot coffee burning her tongue. She stares out the window enjoying the view of her street this time of year. The trees have gone from their deep shades of green to a romantic mix of red, yellow, and orange. The wind rattles the branches, shaking loose the dead leaves and sweeping them down the street. Halloween is only a few days away, and Miranda, Mara- and Miranda admires the decoration of the nearby homes. While it's never been her favorite holiday, Miranda can't help but feel sad she'll be missing it this year. She always seemed to enjoy seeing the kids in their costumes, their plastic pumpkin buckets heavy with candy. She shakes her head, snapping herself out of her daydream. She said to be missing it this time around, but she knows it'll be even better next year. They'll have settled into their new home by then, with hopefully a baby on the way, and their furniture company well off the ground. Or at least, that's the plan. She watches her neighbor set up his scarecrow in the front yard and groans. You owe me five bucks, she says loudly. What? You owe me five bucks. Patrick walks out of the bedroom in his boxers. 
the elastic overstretched and torn at the hem, and stands behind her at the window. Fuck, he mutters, watching as Mr. Perfect, that's what they'd come to call him, arranges his plastic gourds around the scarecrow. He's single-handedly going to keep this house from selling, Miranda tells him. He's not going to keep it from selling. That's what I said. Cut here. I'll leave it in. (laughs) Would you really want to buy a house knowing that that was going to be in the yard next to yours? Patrick decides it's a question better left unanswered. The thing's hideous and unlike any scarecrow he's seen before. It's brown. Leathery skin looks sunken in and dried out, and it wears a dress made of burlap. Its hair is yellow and straw-like, framing its hollow face and black eyes, and its mouth is sewn shut with old twine. Even though Patrick knows it can't say a word, it looks like it's begging for someone to help it off its wooden post. It's not like he has crops to protect. The only thing he's going to scare away at this rate are buyers. Patrick laughs and kisses the back of her head before going back to the bedroom and lying down on the uncomfortable, inflatable mattress. They'd sent their bed ahead of them to their new home, along with practically all their things, the exception being some clothing and a few amenities. In Durden, Saskatchewan. Neither of them had wanted to sleep on an air mattress for a week, but the thought of a 32-hour drive from Montreal to Durden with a bed strapped to their car had been even less appealing. You can't go back to bed, she says, walking into the bedroom after him. You have to go over there and talk to him. Miranda, it's a tradition. He's put that thing up every year since we bought the house. I'm not asking him to take it down forever. I just want him to take it down until we find a buyer. Please, can you go talk to him? When he doesn't answer, she puts her empty cup down on the ground and climbs into bed with him, draping an arm across his chest and rubbing her cold feet against his warm ones. They lie in bed together in comfortable silence until their backs begin to hurt from the squishy bed, then eventually up to get dressed. I need to pass by Max's place to get the last of my power tools, he finally says as he pulls on a pair of jeans and flannel shirt. Then I have a few errands to run. While I'm out, go over and ask him if he'll take it down. If he gives you a hard time, I'll talk to him when I get back, okay? I'll even grab dumplings from that Chinese place you like. She rolls her eyes as she gets dressed. She isn't happy about his proposal, but she doesn't reject it either. After a minute of silence, she finally nods her head. God, I hate talking to him she mutters, heading for the entranceway. Why? Doesn't it interest you when he talks about weeding and lawn care? I sure know I'm riveted. She laughs, voice bouncing off the empty walls. Try not to be too long, she shouts, as she pulls the door closed behind her. He pulls the Chevy into the driveway and puts it in park. He looks at the lawn next door and frowns, staring at the scarecrow in the fading sunlight, before finally turning the engine off. He grabs the stack of folded boxes and the bag of Chinese food off the seat next to his and gets out of the car, shutting the door hard behind him and locking it with a remote. He slides his key into the front door and turns it. Surprised, it's already unlocked. A burnt and bitter scent assaults him the second he's inside, and he buries his nose in the collar of his shirt as he closes the door behind him. Fuck, what's that smell? He walks through the hall to the kitchen and sees the pot of coffee bubbling on its burner. The water has long evaporated, a dark brown sludge left to burn at the bottom of the glass. He tosses the bag of Chinese food on the counter and drops the packing supplies on the floor. 
He turns the machine off and removes the pot from the burner, placing it in the sink. Miranda, he calls, walking through the empty bungalow. She is nowhere to be found. He fishes his cell phone out of his pocket and dials her number, waiting for her to pick up. He hears a noise from the bedroom and curses as he recognizes it as her ringtone. He looks around the room, eyes resting on the hideous scarecrow outside his front window. Patrick walks outside, shutting the door hard after him, and crosses the lawn to his neighbor's porch, not bothering with the walkway and hoping Mr. Perfect doesn't notice the trampled grass, and rings the doorbell. He waits a few minutes and rings the bell again, hoping, holding it in longer this time. No one answers. He knocks on the door, his hand beating against the wood until his knuckles are sore, but nothing. He grabs the handle and gives it a push, but the door is locked. He turns to walk back down the path, debating where to look next, when he notices the gate to Mr. Perfect's backyard is ajar. Deciding it's worth a look, maybe he's outside and can't hear the bell. Patrick walks past the fence and around to the side of the house, to the back patio. But no one's there. He turns to leave, eye-searching the perfectly green yard one last time, and stops in his tracks when he spots Miranda. Only she's not in the backyard, but in the kitchen, naked, tied up, covered in salt, her lips sewn together with twine. Miranda, he screams, picking up a decorative lawn gnome and whipping it through one of Mr. Perfect's sliding back doors. The glass crashes to the floor, some of the smaller shards landing in the salt around Miranda and cutting her bare body. Patrick rushes towards her, crouching on the ground and pushing piles of salt from her dehydrated skin. He grabs at the rope around her wrists, trying to loosen the knots and free her hands. Miranda makes a noise, something caught between a scream and a whimper, and before Patrick can feel the object collide with the back of his head, his world fades to black. You had every opportunity to go home. You had every chance to turn around, but no, you had to snoop. You had to stay. Patrick blinks his eyes open against the harsh fluorescent light of the kitchen. He stares up at the ceiling, his senses returning to him at one time. I was doing you a favor is what I was doing, and you go and ruin it. Mr. Perfect's voice sounds muffled and far away, like he's talking through an empty metal can. I was married to someone like her. Donald, mow the lawn. Donald, paint the garage. Donald, we need to weed the yard. Donald, the bathroom's a mess. Donald, the decorations. Donald, Donald, Donald. He shouts, spit flying and hitting Patrick in the face. He tries to wipe it away, but his hands are tied behind his back. He struggles against the rope, but it only chafes his wrists. Mr. Perfect comes into view, glaring down at him with wild eyes a fishing hook threaded with twine in one hand. Patrick blinks, the light hurting his eye and his head pounding. She comes over here, thinks she could tell me what to do, thinks she owns me, thinks she owns me like my wife did. He shakes his head violently. I do own you, he yells to himself in a high-pitched voice. You worthless, stupid old man! He grabs Patrick's face, holding it still with one arm, and pushes the fishing hook through his lips. He pulls the twine through Patrick's skin, strands of the rough cord dragging through the fresh wound. He screams in pain, lips pulling open along the twine. 
But his neighbor grabs his mouth harder and pulls the string taut, forcing his mouth shut. Don't you talk to me like that, you stupid bitch! You can't tell me what to do anymore! You got that, Lizzie? He screams. Miranda watches as Patrick's mouth is sewn to resemble her own, and the two of them writhe against their bindings. Once Mr. Perfect's done with Patrick, he stands up and drags two heavy bags of road salt toward him. He cuts them open, dumping the contents on Patrick's naked body and disappearing from view once more. Patrick squirms, trying to get the salt off of his body, but Mr. Perfect returns with two more bags that he adds to the heap, then another two, and still another. That was supposed to be for her, he points to Miranda, and the driveway. Donald, remember we need extra salt for the pathway this year? Your parents always have such a hard time, he mimics again. Damn it, Lizzie, I'll buy more, he shouts. He leaves the room, arguing amongst himself, leaving Miranda and Patrick to watch in horror from their salt mountains. I still can't believe how cheap we got this place, Haley says as she unpacks one of the large moving boxes. Well, it's been on the market for over a year. I think the bank was just happy to get rid of it, John admits. She stares out the window, smiling at the golden leaves on the trees and the Halloween decorations. Those are hideous, she says, smiling, fading, as she points to the yard next door. A chill runs down her spine. Three scarecrows stand in the middle of the lawn, their mouths sewn shut, eyes replaced with black buttons. Their arms delicately delicately bent around a slate of wood and nailed into the post that holds them upright. Her husband looks out and shrugs. They're not great, but it could be worse. Haley stays quiet as she stares out the window. John crosses the room and stands behind her, wrapping his arms around her and placing his chin on her shoulder. If you don't like them, you can always ask him to take them down. Yeah, she nods slowly. Yeah, I think I will. Thank you. And that was from the great Caitlin Marceau. Thank you, Kate. And uh, now, if he's ready... Oh yeah, your story three, brother. Uh, I would like to. This is this is going to be really cool. I had asked Dan to write a story for this episode um, because this is you know this is the one episode I crawl out of my crypt and you know you know rob him of the Halloween episode essentially. And I thought it. What would be a the biggest dick move in the world would not let Dan read a story, and I couldn't do that to him. He's done a fantastic job of the show. And this story is really cool. It's really creepy. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Foydick. The voice of the Wicked Library. Hey, everybody. Yeah, making a mess over there, buddy. How's everybody doing? Having fun so far? All right. Well, let's see if we can continue that. All right, so this is a uh, little story that I wrote uh, for the show, uh, for this episode, actually. And it's uh, pretty short, about a thousand words, and it's called No Car, Truck. Well, Doc, I'm hearing it again, the voice. I should probably have said something to you about that sooner, but 
I just didn't want to deal with all of this again. I was doing really well, you know. I thought I'd make it this time. It's trying to tell me things, but I'd rather it didn't. It shows up when I least expect it, and sometimes I don't even realize what's happening until I get that funny feeling. Sometimes I hear it when I'm watching TV or out walking around. I seem to forget what it says as soon as it finishes saying things. I don't think I want to know these things. I think that's why I forget. This time, I think I'll remember because I'm telling you about it. And you always remember what I say. You'll remember for me if if I forget, won't you? Maybe if I remember, it'll stop talking to me, stop making me do things. Here's what it's telling me. It's what it's saying right now. I know you don't want to hear me, but you need to remember this time. We used to know each other, you and me. I don't know why you always forget, but I'll keep telling you, though. It wasn't supposed to be like this. We used to have fun together. We planned things really well. We made those things happen. We were pretty much unstoppable once we figured things out. But the others didn't like that. They didn't want us together. So they took you away from me. They made you talk the way they wanted you to talk, made you dress the way they thought was best, made you act the way they thought you should act. They made you into a whole different person and made you forget what we used to know and what we used to do. I tried to talk to you, but they kept changing you, kept pushing me away. At first, we wouldn't let them do it. We'd wait until they weren't around, and we'd slip into the shadows, and we'd make plans, and we'd have fun. But the longer they had you, the harder it was for me to get you to notice me. They made you ignore me when I talked to you, when I screamed at you, when I jumped up and down right in front of you. You just stared right through me. You just ignored me. Pretty soon, I was like a shadow to you, like something you only see out of the corner of your eye. I wondered if you could even see me at all anymore, if you could hear me trying to help you. I don't think you could. I was getting sick then, too. I felt fuzzy, confused. I knew the things we used to do, but I couldn't do them without you. God, we had fun. We were smarter than the others. We weren't hollow inside like all of them. They hated us for that for being different than them. But I waited. I wouldn't let them have you. I knew sooner or later they'd decide you were just like the rest of them again. And it actually worked. You were bland and boring like them. Nothing like the one I used to know. They thought they could brush me aside. They thought we'd never be together again just because they made you dull and numb made you embarrassed to show the marks we had made on your arms? They don't know us very well, do they? Do you remember? Remember the first time we took something apart to see how it worked inside? It was so beautiful on the inside. Those tendrils of golden energy flowing back and forth, making it work, making it shine. God damn, it was beautiful. We cried together. It was so beautiful. 
so many pieces, though. Jesus, there were lots of pieces. It wasn't our fault we couldn't put it back together again. I think Dad knew we broke it. I mean, we weren't as good at planning things back then, at telling people what they wanted to hear. But hey, dogs run away all the time. They couldn't find where we hid it, so they had to believe it. Even if they didn't really believe it. Mom really wanted to believe it. I think that's why she never said anything about the missing bath towels. We planned better after that. Each time was better, wasn't it? It was all really good practice. We never could figure out why they stopped working when we took them apart. But we will soon. Then you can make me real again. I'll be just like you were once we get it figured out. That's why we can't stop. Why you can't forget again. You have to fix me. You owe me. Don't worry. I'm not mad. It wasn't your fault. You told me no car was coming when I asked, and you were right. It was a truck. (laughs) Two completely different things. I mean, you could have said there was a truck coming, but hey, no hard feelings. Come on. Seriously, I'm not mad. Really? No, I'm not. Come on, don't don't cry. <sighs> please, please don't look away like that. Just look at me. I'm actually here if you look. I'm here, just like the rest of the people no one wants to see. We're around you all the time. We're all still here, hoping one of you will see us. You remember now, right? You just don't see us. But we're special, you and me. We're the same. We're twins. Well, he's not talking anymore. I think that uh, he said what he wanted to say. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate you listening to me. I don't think I told you that part before about the other ones like him. I can see all of them again now. None of them are happy with me. But... I have to finish getting the pieces I need so I can put my brother together, so sorry about that. Most people won't be able to see you anymore, but don't worry. I can still see you. And because I don't want you to be lonely, when your wife comes home, I'll make sure she can see you too. Give it up, Daniel Foynick. Thank you, man. Awesome job, brother. Okay, so, would anyone like a cookie? Does anyone want a cookie? Uh, Total serious. Okay, we're going to take a run around the block. We'll be back three stories in, four to go, kitties. Have some uh, have some soda or pop, as they call it, around these parts. Uh, over by the lovely Chris Record, there is a table full of snacks and chips and what have you. Uh, if you need to use the loo, please use the loo. It is in the back of the store. Don't take anything because she'll rip your arms off and beat you with, to death with them. We'll be back in a little bit. Until then, listen to this. Most people can't find it, but you will. 
I'm waiting for you. I think you'll have a lot of fun here too. Unless you make the wrong choice. <laughs> Hey boys and ghouls, it's John here from Red Horse Radio. You're listening to The Wicked Library. This is where I go when I want to get the heebie-jeebies scared out of me. This is Nelson W. Piles. Wrap your ears around this. Welcome back to the second half of the Wicked Library Halloween special. Thank you all for sticking around. If you don't have a plate of food, please give yourself a round of applause. <clears throat> and we're going to pick it right back up. This is a great story. This is uh, this is an author that's been on the show quite a few times. Her name is Lindsay Goddard. And uh, she lives in Missouri and she writes really great badass horror story she's a really 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 cool lady and this is a story that uh i i asked her i'm like hey can you write me something for halloween and she had written a really great story the year previous and she was excited to do it again and she's like i'll have it i gave her a deadline date and every story that i had asked someone to write had come in and we were two weeks out from her deadline and i said hey how's uh how's your story coming along because I do get nervous about stuff like that. I usually, you know, I'm 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 the the asshole that hands stuff in early, like beyond early. I did I wrote an episode of uh of Dan's show The Lift and like the the dead this was like in I think August and you know, it was like okay, or maybe even July, I'm not really sure. It was like it's not coming out until November. It's not coming out until November, but uh which which will be the day after this uh <laughs> the day after this episode airs. And I uh, was like, yeah, your deadline's October 1st. And I think I had it to him before the end of that week. <laughs> and I had to sit like, and everybody was on a chain email going, how's your stories coming along? And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I have to bail off of this thing because I'm done. <laughs> so, but uh, look out for the lift. Uh, was it victoriaslift.com? That is correct. Victoriaslift.com. Coming in November. There's my super sexy swinging sound voice. That's right. You are actually doing a special Halloween episode. So there would be an episode coming out on Oh really? So I have two shows. You have this one, and if you if you care to listen to it, Victoria's Lift will be out on Halloween as well. It's the episode zero, so it's just it's an unofficial. The actual release is November, but this is a fun little Halloween. Story. Well, some people don't like an early release, but that sounds like it's a good one, Dan. <laughs> it is. It is a cool show. It's a cool concept. I think you'll all dig it. So, uh, your Halloween just got a whole hell of a lot cooler. Listen to us, and then listen to the Lift episode zero. Who the hell are you? We're closed. Oh, it's your store. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway, so this is a story from the great Lindsay Goddard, and this is called Freak.
Dark hair covered Charlotte's face and dangled dangerously close to her, the tip of her cigarette. She wanted to hide inside the blackness of her hood, but the wind kept blowing it back. Some battles you just can't win, she thought. Taking another drag, she wished she'd waited until she was further away from the school before lighting up. Classmates could be so cruel. Stinky Charlotte, they had yelled at her previous school. Stinky Charlotte has an ashtray mouth. Charlotte had started smoking two years ago, or was it three, trying to fit in with a group of friends. The nasty habit stayed with her much longer than the friends had. They had all vanished in a matter of weeks. Better enjoy this pack, she thought. Had to scare the bejesus out of that gas station clerk to get it. She was a month away from turning 16 and two years from the legal smoking age, so cigarettes weren't easy to come by. But Charlotte had her methods. She'd reached the crosswalk as three school buses slowed to a stop, turn signals clicking. The October air was cool on her bare arms, but that's not what gave her goosebumps. The walk sign flashed, and she knew everyone inside the buses had a clear view of her. Something deep inside her ached at the thought, wanting to leap from her skin. She took a puff. Fuck them if they don't like me. I'm done trying to make friends. She stomped the cigarette in the grass and started across the street. Hey, new girl, what's... Wait up! She turned to see a gangly boy with orange hair jogging in her direction. He caught up and fell in stride beside her. Hey, what's your name? I forgot. Charlotte, she muttered. She quickened her pace, eyes fixed ahead. So, Charlotte, uh, any plans tonight? No, she said. Really? On Halloween night? His tone was playful, but Charlotte spun around and frowned. Why? she demanded. Uh, my friends and I, we have a hangout spot. Gonna chill tonight, shoot the shit. She started walking again, and he followed, adding, Okay, well, you probably wouldn't want to hang out with us anyway. The Loser Club, that, that's what we're called. That's what the asshole jocks named us anyway, so we sort of took it back. She sighed and adjusted the bag on her shoulder. She carried with her everywhere she went. So, I'm invited to hang out with the Loser Club? Gee, that's swell, but I'll pass. She sped up, and the boy called out, I, I didn't mean it like that. Charlotte didn't respond. Every school was the same. Day two, and already, she was a loser. The last of the trick-or-treaters faded, and Charlotte sat in a room, listening to her parents argue. She'll have to learn to control it. Anger management classes, maybe? Therapy? We can't switch schools again, said her father. Charlotte wiped tears and slipped out for a smoke. There was no moonlight, only blackness and stars. You shouldn't be out here, she thought as she finished her cigarette. You should be at home, locked away. Three teenage girls turned the corner from an adjacent street. She froze. The blonde in the middle smiled when she saw Charlotte, her blue eyes sparkling in the lamplight. Hey, new kid, eat this! She thrust a gloved hand at Charlotte, and in her open palm was something that used to be a candy bar. But now the chocolatey lump looked and smelled like it had been rolled in dirt, piss, and shit. No thank you, Charlotte said. Don't make her do it, Kelly. Let's just tell the boys we did it, said one of the girls. Kelly sneered. Someone has to eat it or I have to give Tommy Morris my panties. A bet is a bet. I'm no liar. I'm a winner. She flashed a smile full of white teeth. She's going to eat this candy bar or I'm going to make her eat it. 
Charlotte felt the familiar sensation of a third eye opening in her forehead. She gasped, covered it with her hand, and ran away. The beast inside her roared, Let me out! Let me out! She could hear their heavy footfalls behind her. What a freak! Come back here, you freak! She turned off the sidewalk, cutting through a field and into the woods. She weaved in and out of branches until her toes caught a tree root. She fell to the ground, and the girls chanted, Freak! 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 Her whole body spasmed. She couldn't fight it, not with her adrenaline flowing. Her spine doubled in length. Her clothes fell in tatters as her muscles bulged. Tentacles sprang from her head, and bloodshot eyes opened in her face. Two, three, four extra eyes staring down at the girls. Their ear-splitting screams filled the night as a forked tongue flicked from her mouth. You're right, Charlotte growled. I am a freak. They turned and ran, still screaming, and she sighed through the needle-sharp teeth. She concentrated on the blackness of the sky, the coolness of the breeze, calming things that helped her summon her human form again. She searched the ground for her bag, picked it up, and retrieved a fresh set of clothes. As she finished dressing, a soft voice said, Uh, excuse me? She scanned the trees and spotted the orange-haired boy from earlier, flanked by four of his friends. We, we saw what happened, Charlotte. You found our spot after all. He pointed in the direction of a fire glowing down the path. You saw what happened? We did, he said, and I gotta say, we're, we're impressed. No one's ever stood up to those bitches before. Charlotte gulped, nearly crying. Y you don't think I'm a freak? She said. A chubby kid with acne and braces said, No way, that was badass. Yeah, said a short, stumpy girl. Super badass. Charlotte bit her lip. I didn't catch your names at school, she said. The boy with the orange hair spoke for everyone. We're the Freak Club, formerly known as the Loser Club. You, you want to join? Charlotte had to laugh then. Sure, she said. I'd, I'd love that. She followed them down the trail, still chuckling a little. Maybe this time I won't have to switch schools, she thought. But deep down inside her, the angry monster ached begging for release. Thank you very much. And thank you, Lindsay. That was an awesome story. We're going to leave that on the floor. Not my story. <laughs> now, now this, this next story, this is, this is a fun story for me. It's, it, it, it starts out, kind of humorous and it goes dark really really quickly it's fun because it has fun accents in it and i love fun accents and this this marks pretty much the first time i have read uh, a story for the show in front of the author who wrote it this is written by mad may march sitting over here and may's been on the show approximately three times and this would be number four and this is like your second holiday special, too, to boot. Mm -hmm. Last time was Christmas. Last time was uh, Chris Massacre yeah. 2, I think. That's, that's right, Chris Massacre. That's a great name. I love that. So this is, uh, 
the, the, the first thing when I, when I got the email on this, cause I asked May, I'm like, please write me a story for Halloween. She's like, Oh, okay. And she goes to work. And the first thing I see, it's, it's her email address subject and the title of the story. And I laughed. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. So this is, uh, this is, uh, Mad May March and her story. Fuck the Fay. You know, brother, it doesn't have to be this way. Why can't we be friends? The soothing Gaelic lilt melted through Rudy's skull like candle wax permeating a fine cotton sheet. His insides tingled with inexplicable bliss that completely overshadowed his terror, and for a moment, Rudy forgot what he was doing. The orange hue of the evening sun glinted off the approaching creature's reddish-gold locks and amber wings. Straight, though Rudy was, he had to admit, Ruari was a stunning creature. He stared, utterly entranced, until the space between them disappeared. You ain't my girlfriend! With a shake of his head, Rudy tried to banish the bespelled feeling. And you fucked her! How else did you think it was gonna go? And stop calling me your fucking brother! Rudy spat at the red-skinned Faye as he remembered what he'd been doing and collapsed onto the large mound of dirt. His chest heaved from the exertion of his sprint through the woods, and he struggled to pull the lighter out of his front pocket with clumsy, shaking hands. Oh, come on now, Rudy. I didn't eat her. I just nibbled out a bit of the skull and spine to get to that shiny little soul. Hardly a thing to mind, none how. I'll give it back when you bring me my son this time next year. Tried to have the little brat weaned by then. I do hate it when they won't quit crying for their ma when we're a world away. You ate her soul and you knocked her up? What the fuck? What the hell am I supposed to do with a raving zombie girlfriend and some winged demon baby? Rudy, now you've offended me. Demon, not hardly. Rory scoffed and his cloven hoofed feet touched ground mere inches behind Rudy. We're fae, my red brother, not demons. Came out of a fairy mound from the other world, didn't I? Can't see what you're mad at me for anybody. It was an honest mistake. I thought you were offering her to me. You can't fault me when it was you who decided to till her fertile fields on a fay hill and on old Halloween, no less. You never visit a side at sowing. The winged man knocked on Rudy's head lightly to emphasize how obvious this seemed. Not unless you want a visit from my people. The sowing is hallowed because it's the eve of open doors for me and mine. Why do you think you lot run around in your costumes? You're trying to look like us. Blend in, keep safe and all. At least you're used to. Not really sure what sexy girly pirates and nearly bare-breasted catwomen in their underwear have to do with my people, but you'll not see me complain. Laughing loudly, Ruri slapped Rudy across the back jovially. I'll fuck you! Rudy was clearly not amused. Well, no, but thank you. I rather prefer you lady folks. Better jiggly bits and all. Look, I don't want your history lesson, and I don't want to raise your freaking face spawn or whatever the hell it is. I want my life back. Much to Rudy's frustration, Ruri completely ignored him and continued on his current musing. Speaking of women's wobbly wiles, what I was meaning afar was that if I'd known you weren't offering me your bit as broodmare, I'd have gladly found another. You have no one to blame but yourself. How was I supposed to know it was you she was screaming for? I thought she was calling to me. It's the same name, you know, just different translations, and that's why 
I can call you brother. Brother. The final rays of the sun were just beginning to set, and for a brief moment, Ruari grew still and quiet. The mound beneath them began to twist and peel like a rosebud beginning to blossom, rolling Rudy back down to the level ground at Ruari's feet. From within, a living yellow-green light began to seep out into the darkening world around them. What's that you got there? A little candle? Not much good that'll do you now. You don't even have a jack's lantern to put it in. Not that you need it now. My lot are smart enough not to come through on the final open. Your world's a fun visit, but we'd be bereft of our skies if we had to stay a year away from home. Now why don't you and your little candle move so I can be on my way? Fuck you. Rudy muttered as he slid out of the way. Fuck you and fuck all the fae. So angry, Rudy, but fine. If that's what you like, you go right ahead, brother. Not me, of course, but I'll bring you back a nice little green witch in a year. Ruri looked down at the kneeling human as he started down the vine and petal stairway within the blossomed hill. Call it a fair trade for your girlie. Rudy didn't answer. There was a flick. A flick and finally a fizzle as Rudy brought the lighter to life and touched it to a dirty gray wick. He was pleasantly surprised when the ancient-looking fuse sprang to life, carrying the spark at an alarming rate toward the stained and dusty stick of dynamite from his great-grandfather's basement. How about you just go fuck yourself instead, brother? Rudy grinned and with a quick flick of his wrist, he tossed the explosive down the steps toward Ruri. Before either of them could react further, Rudy's entire perceivable world became a bright flash and deafening boom. When his vision returned and the dizziness cleared enough for Rudy to contemplate the situation, he realized he'd been thrown several yards across the clearing. The ringing in his ears was still too intense to hear anything, but past the flash spots, lingering in his eyes, Rudy could see little flecks of flame dancing in the dry leaves around the rubble and shattered fairy hill. Lightning-bright, vivid pain ripped through Rudy's torso when he tried to stand. With the pain came clarity and a sudden awareness of his surroundings and of the rapidly approaching flame he now knew to be the Red Fay shrieking at him with a voice of pure fire. What have you done, brother? What have you done? Ruri stopped at the edge of the Fay Hill's rubble, which still glowed a dwindling green in the darkening twilight, all I wanted to do was to get myself home, but now... The dying light barely illuminated the shattered rock and sod as it began to roll, slide, and fly from place. Arms and legs in every color of the rainbow scrambled out from under the debris. Wings followed as the strange humanoids took to the sky, so many that the dusk sky was blotted out by their numbers. They screeched and wailed, bemoaning their misfortune in a roaring cacophony above him, but all their mourning couldn't drown out the voice of their king inside Rudy's head. Do you have any idea how many souls we're going to have to burn through to get this many of my people home on the next Halloween, Rudy? Or how many of your people it will take to sustain us for the year in between while we rebuild our hill? Terror had previously held Rudy too frightened to move, but the touch of delicate fingers that burned his skin on contact wrapped around Rudy's ankles sent a wave of euphoric warmth through his body. A teal-skinned girl with hair that reminded him of a peacock's plumes was creeping up over him, 
smiling as her little fingers dipped into every hole in his scorched and tattered clothes. The peacock woman smiled down at Rudy with a mouth full of multiple rows of teeth like razor-sharp needles, and bent her head toward his face. And suddenly, the voice of the fake king no longer seemed frightening. It was the voice of a brother. What was it you were saying, Rudy? Fuck the fae. Well, then why don't you give it a try? See for yourself why you never, ever fuck the fae. Thank you. Thank you, May. <clears throat> now, that was the uh, that was the last of the stories uh, that were, I, I don't want to say commissioned because I didn't pay anybody, but the, the last of the stories that were commissioned for this episode. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a really, really quick history lesson. The first, the very first Halloween episode that the Wicked Library uh, had, had the approximate audience that is in this room right now. The audience that we have now is roughly 40,000 monthly. And I did, I did two stories for the, the very first episode. I, I think I used every author that I knew for the entire first season. And when it came to Halloween, I took, I, I, I took to the on, online interwebs and found three awesome stories in the public domain. Which is a cool thing, because there's lots of really neato stuff in the public domain. Uh, the first one that I did, uh, I'm actually going to do last, because that turned out to be one of my favorite stories ever. Ever. It's so badass, it cannot be contained. Um, and then there was this story. This is a... Uh, this is one of my favorites. This is probably one of the first things that ever got me into horror. The last two pieces here are written by people that are now dead. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent gasp. And the first one, and I killed every one of them, all two of them. Uh, you certainly do know uh, this one. This is by Edgar Allan Poe, and this is called The Raven. <laughs> Don't cheer yet. I didn't deliver anything. Let's let's see if let's see if this works. Ready? No, I'm not doing the Christ. On the first, on the first, real quick, the first Halloween special, I did part of it in a Christopher Walken voice. <clears throat> so I was like, once upon the midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak, fucking weary, and. It was it was lots of fun, but I'm not going to do that. I uh, know it's in the archive. Go get it, wikilibrary.com. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my book's secrece of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore." for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore. 
nameless here forevermore. And the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now to the still of, to the, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is and nothing more. Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice, let me see then what thereat is in this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment in this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped the stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obsolescence made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with main of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before on the morrow. He will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply, so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is only stock in store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast, and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, 
on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated are. But whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating are, she shall press nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels, he hath sent thee respite, respite and nepeth from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepeth, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed, Thee here ashore desolate, yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted. On this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there bomb in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, never more. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up, starting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. <laughs> and the raven Never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that brings us to this. I love, I adore this story. This story was, was written in the late 1800s and is one of the most hardcore stories from that time or even within the last 10 years. It's, it's pure badass. And the author is a guy named Lafquiato Hearn. Uh, anybody ever hear of Lafquiato Hearn? Yes. This story is called Of a Promise Broken. And this, I, I read this story. I like, I started reading it. I'm like, uh, oh, it's, it's okay. And then by the time you get to, to, to where the shit goes down, I was like, I can't believe that this story was written in the 1800s. The coolest part is, La, uh, uh, Lafquiato is an Irish writer. Well, he was an Irish writer that moved to Japan and changed his name to a Japanese name and just started pumping out all this great fiction. And he didn't write a whole ton of horror, but the horror that he wrote was just simply outstanding. Do yourself a favor. If you like Google and stuff, Google this guy. Most of his work you can find on like Wikipedia, stuff like that. And just, just 
pick this stuff up. It's it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. I'm re- I'm really overhyping it now, so I guess I kind of have to deliver on this. This is the last story this evening, and I, before we launch into it, thank you all very much for coming tonight. This was really a lot of fun. This is called "Of a Promise Broken." I am not afraid to die, said the dying wife. There is only one thing that troubles me now. I wish that I could know who will take my place in this house. My dear one, answered the sorrowing husband, nobody shall ever take your place in my home. I will never, never marry again. At the time he said this, he was speaking out of his heart, for he loved the woman whom he was about to lose. On the faith of a samurai? She questioned with a feeble smile. On the faith of a samurai, he responded, stroking her pale, thin face. Then, my dear one, she said, you will let me be buried in the garden, will you not? Near those plum trees that we planted at the further end, I I wanted to ask long ago, but I thought that if you were to marry again, you would not like to have my grave so near you. Now you have promised that no other woman shall take my place, so I need not hesitate to speak of my wish. I want so much to be buried in the garden. I think that in the garden I should sometimes hear your voice, and that I should still be able to see the flowers in the spring. It shall be as you wish, he answered. But do not now speak of burial. You are not so ill that we have lost all hope. I have, she returned. I shall die this morning. But you will bury me in the garden? Yes, he said, under the shade of the plum trees that we planted. And you shall have a beautiful tomb there. And you will give me a little bell? Bell? Yes, I want you to put a little bell in the coffin, such a little bell as the Buddhist pilgrims carry. Shall shall I have it? You shall have the little bell and anything else that you wish. I do not wish for anything else, she said. My dear one, you have been very good to me always. Now I can die happy. Then she closed her eyes and died as easily as a tired child falls asleep. She looked beautiful when she was dead, and there was a smile upon her face. She was buried in the garden under the shade of the trees that she loved, and a small bell was buried with her. Above the grave was erected a handsome monument decorated with the family crest and bearing the Kaimo, great elder sister, luminous shadow of the plum flower, dwelling in the mansion of the great sea of compassion. But within a twelve-month after her death, the relatives and friends of the samurai began to insist that he should marry again. You are still a young man, they said, and an only son, and you have no children. It is the duty of a samurai to marry If you die childless, who will be there to make the offerings and remember the ancestors? By many such representations, he was at last persuaded to marry again. The bride was only 17 years old, and he found that he could love her deeply, 
notwithstanding the dumb reproach of the tomb in the garden. Two. Nothing took place to disturb the happiness of the young wife until the seventh day after the wedding, when her husband was ordered to undertake certain duties requiring his presence at the castle by night. On the first evening that he was obliged to leave her alone, she felt uneasy in a way that she could not explain, vaguely afraid, without knowing why. When she went to bed, she could not sleep. There was a strange oppression in the air, an indefinable heaviness like that which sometimes precedes the coming of a storm. About the hour of the ox, she heard outside in the night the clanging of a bell, a Buddhist's pilgrim bell. And she wondered what pilgrim could be passing through the samurai quarter at such a time. Presently, after a pause, the bell sounded much nearer. Evidently, the pilgrim was approaching the house, but why approaching from the rear, where no road was? Suddenly, the dogs began to whine and howl in an unusual and horrible way, and a fear came upon her, like the fear of dreams. That ringing was certainly in the garden. She tried to get up to waken a servant, but she found that she could not rise, could not move, could not call. And nearer, and still more near, came the clang of the bell. And oh, how the dogs howled. Then lightly, as a shadow steals, there glided into the room a woman, though very Though every door stood fast and every screen unmoved, a woman robed in a grave robe and carrying a pilgrim's bell. Eyeless she came, because she had long been dead, and her loosened hair streamed down about her face, and she looked without eyes through the tangle of it and spoke without a tongue. Not in this house, not in this house shall you stay. Here I am mistress still. You shall go, and you shall tell none the reason of your going. If you tell him, I will tear you into pieces. So speaking, the haunter vanished. The bride became senseless with fear. Until the dawn, she so remained. Nevertheless, in the cheery light of day, she doubted the reality of what she had seen and heard. The memory of the warning still weighed upon her so heavily that she did not dare speak of the vision, either to her husband or to anyone else, but she was almost able to persuade herself that she had only dreamed an ugly dream which had made her ill. On the following night, however, she could not doubt Again, at the hour of the ox, the dogs began to howl and whine. Again, the bell resounded. Approaching slowly from the garden, again the listener vainly strove to rise and call. Again, the dead came into the room and hissed, You shall go, and you shall tell no one why you must go. If you even whisper it to him... I will tear you in pieces. This time the haunter came close to the couch and bent and muttered and mowed above it. 
Next morning, when the samurai returned from the castle, his young wife prostrated herself before him in supplication. I beseech you, she said, to pardon my ingratitude and my great rudeness in thus addressing you, but I want to go home. I want to go away at once. Are you not happy here? He asked in sincere surprise. Has anyone dared to be unkind to you during my absence? It's not that, she answered, sobbing. Everybody here has been only too good to me, but I cannot continue to be your wife. I must go away. My dear, he exclaimed in great astonishment, it is very painful to know that you have had any cause for unhappiness in this house, but I cannot even imagine why you should want to go away unless somebody has been very unkind to you. Surely you do not mean that you wish for a divorce. She responded, trembling and weeping. If you do not give me a divorce, I shall die. He remained silent for a little while, vainly trying to think of some cause for this amazing declaration. Then, without betraying any emotion, he made answer. To send you back now to your people without any fault on your part would seem a shameful act. If you will tell me a good reason for your wish, any reason that will enable me to explain matters honorably... I can write you a divorce, but unless you give me a reason, a good reason, I will not divorce you, for the honor of the house must be kept above reproach. And then she felt obliged to speak, and she told him everything, adding in an agony of terror, Now that I've let you know she will kill me, she will kill me! Although a brave man and a little inclined to believe in phantoms, the samurai was more than startled for the moment. But a simple and natural explanation of the matter soon presented itself to his mind. My dear, he said, you are very nervous, and I fear that someone has been telling you foolish stories. I I cannot give you a divorce merely because you have had a bad dream in this house. But I am very sorry indeed that you should have been suffering in such a way during my absence. Tonight also I must be at the castle, but you shall not be alone. I will order two of the retainers to keep watch in your room, and you will be able to sleep in peace. They are good men, and they will take all possible care of you. Then he spoke to her so considerately and so affectionately that she became almost ashamed of her terrors and resolved to remain in the house. 3. The two retainers left in charge of the young wife were big, brave, simple-hearted men, experienced guardians of women and children. They told the bride pleasant stories to keep her cheerful. She talked with them a long time, laughed at their good-humored fun, and almost forgot her fears. When at last she lay down to sleep, the men-at-arms took their places in a corner of the room behind a screen and began a game of go, speaking only in whispers that she might not be disturbed. She slept like an infant. But again, at the hour of the ox, she awoke with a moan of terror, for she heard the bell. It was already near and was coming nearer. She started up. She screamed. But in the room there was no stir, only a silence as of death, a silence growing, a silence thickening. She rushed to the men-at-arms. They sat before their checker table, motionless, each staring at the other with fixed eyes. She shrieked to them. 
She shook them. They remained as if frozen. Afterwards, they said that they had heard the bell, heard also the cry of the bride, even felt her try to shake them into wakefulness, and that nevertheless they had not been able to move or speak. From the same moment they had ceased to hear or see, a black sleep had seized upon them. Entering his bridal chamber at dawn, the samurai beheld by the light of a dying lamp the headless body of his young wife, lying in a pool of blood. Still squatting before their unfinished game, the two retainers slept. At their master's cry, they sprang up and stupidly stared at the horror on the floor. The head was nowhere to be seen, and the hideous wound showed that it had not been cut off, but torn off. A trail of blood led from the chamber to an angle of the outer gallery, where the storm doors appeared to have been riven apart. Three men followed that trail into the garden, over reaches of grass, over spaces of sand, along the bank of an iris-bordered pond, under the heavy shadowings of cedar and bamboo, and suddenly, at a turn, they found themselves face to face with a nightmare thing that chippered like a bat, the figure of the long-buried woman, erect before her tomb, in one hand clutching a bell, in the other the dripping head. For a moment the three stood numbed. Then one of the men-at-arms, uttering a Buddhist invocation, drew and struck at the shape. Instantly it crumbled down upon the soil, an empty scattering of grave rags, bone, and hair, and the bell rolled, clanking out of the ruin. But the fleshless right hand though parted from the wrist, still writhed, and its fingers still gripped at the bleeding head, and tore and mangled as the claws of the yellow crab cling fast to a fallen fruit. That is a wicked story, I said to the friend who had just related it. The vengeance of the dead, if taken at all, should have been taken upon the man. Men think so he made the answer. But that is not the way a woman feels. He was right. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Our, uh, our authors, uh, in no particular order, Lindsay Goddard, May March, Dan Foydick, Caitlin Marceau, Maddie Von Stark, Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> and Lafka Dio Hearn. Uh, thank you all very, very much for coming out tonight, for allowing us to lock you in the store. You two over there, did you have fun? Awesome. Uh, thank you very much. This is really cool for me. Um, I'll be back in like a year <laughs> to, to do this again. Um, I, I don't, thanks to Dan for, uh, for, for making this part of the deal. <laughs> Check out Dan's work. Dan is headlong into season six of the Wicked Library. Go to thewickedlibrary.com. Thanks to Chris, Chris Rickard, the fabulous Rickard and Beagle Books, John Towers, and all of you. Thank you all very much. Have a great night and happy Halloween.
This episode of the Wicked Library features stories from Maddie Von Stark, Caitlin Marceau, Daniel Foytick, Lindsay Goddard, May March, Edgar Allan Poe, and Lafcadio Hearn. For more information about the authors, please go to the notes for this episode. The artwork for this episode was created by the show's co-creator, John Towers. For more information, go to johnnyaxe.com and follow him on Twitter at johnnyaxe and follow him on Facebook as well. The sponsor for this episode is Rickett and Beagle Books. Rickett and Beagle is the official physical location of the Wicked Library. Books for everything your little heart desires. Rare, unique, quirky, mainstream, and beyond. Check out rickettandbeaglebooks.com and plan a visit when you're in Pittsburgh. If you like this program, why not share it with your friends? No friends? Make some by sharing the show. We'll be your friends forever. Rate us on iTunes as it helps us the most to grow so much larger. You can find us on Twitter at Wicked Library and at Facebook.com backslash The Wicked Library. Subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and Google. We are everywhere. <laughs> Sign up for our newsletter at thewickedlibrary.com and get bonus content, prizes, and much, much more. All works read in this audio recording, associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their express permission. Dramatic readings performed by Nelson W. Piles and Daniel Foytick. The voice of the librarian was performed by the librarian, except no substitutes, kiddies. The voice of Society 13 was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rosick and performed by Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. The Wicked Library is produced by Daniel Foytick. Executive producer and creator is Nelson W. Piles. The live performance setup was provided by Michael Goring. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. This has been your librarian. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It's less terrifying if you can see the monster coming, right? <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.